This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, my guest today is the first nonprofit leader I've had on the show from the country of Brazil. My guest is Dennis Misney, CEO of the Lemon Foundation, which is one of Brazil's leading nonprofit foundations, which has led the way in transforming educational opportunities in Brazil. Now, not only that, but most recently, the foundation was very instrumental in Brazil's COVID response. Just like the U.S., Brazil was hit really hard with COVID, and the Lemon Foundation was instrumental in forming a coalition of leaders to figure out how they could develop and distribute what became the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine that now has been deployed throughout the country. So this foundation has been particularly successful at building a coalition of leaders from a wide range of sectors, including the government, for-profit, and nonprofit sectors, in order to address some of Brazil's biggest challenges. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, thanks, Dennis, for being on the show today. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to start out by talking about your role at the Lemon Foundation. For my listeners, could you give us a quick overview of the Lemon Foundation? And here's my understanding. The foundation's mission is this, to make Brazil a more just and equitable place by guaranteeing access to high-quality public education for Brazilians of all backgrounds, while supporting the development of leaders committed to the social transformation of Brazil. Now, there's a lot there. Uh, so, Dennis, talk about how the foundation was first started, and why is public education your primary mission? So, thanks, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity to be the first Brazilian on your show. I hope you won't, you know, give up on Brazilians. Maybe I'm the only one who doesn't do a good job. So, you still have 200 million others to try. The Lemon Foundation was started in 2002 by Jorge Paulo Lemon. Jorge Paulo Lemon is a global entrepreneur. He's not maybe not the first person that comes to mind in terms of entrepreneurs these days in, in the U.S., but he does control a lot of big U.S. brands like Anheuser-Busch and Bev and Kraft and Heinz and Burger King. So he has been involved in, in building these companies from Brazil who became global companies. And what was behind a lot of his success was this deep belief in people's potential. And this is when he wanted to create his family philanthropy uh, which is what we are, a family foundation, he thought about like what could be done for Brazil to, to achieve this vision that, that you just described of being more just and fair. And basically is we have to treat better the most important resource we have as a country, which is our people, right? If we can ensure that every Brazilian achieve their full potential, we as a country would be unstoppable, right? This would be the biggest kind of competitive advantage Brazil could have. We have like 2.5 million babies being born every year. They have a place in school, but unfortunately, when they are reaching high school, 40% of them had to drop out for economic reasons or for because of lack of learning. But out of the 60% who finish high school, only about 10% learn math, for example, at the appropriate level. So this means that we are wasting a lot of our potential. We are, instead of taking, you know, full stock 
of, of our people, we are, you know, letting a lot of them in, in the middle and, and, and letting them fall behind. And then they cannot fulfill their potential. And then Brazil keep being kind of always the country of the future. So our vision has to do with that. Like, and, and the focus on, on, on public education, on basic education is a direct kind of consequence of believing in people. The best way to ensure that everyone gets their full potential is ensuring that the, our public education system works well, that we're delivering great education to every single kid in Brazil. And that's our main, main focus. Well, it's a great vision and it makes complete sense of the future of this country really resides there uh, with investing in this next generation. Now, as we talked about a little bit before the show, just like the U.S., uh, Brazil was hit very hard with COVID and one of the most impactful results was the closing of schools. I understand your foundation knew that in order to get kids back to school safely, there needed to be a massive vaccination effort, again, much like the U.S., throughout Brazil. And so I understand that your foundation really helped build a coalition of leaders throughout Brazil, from state governments, health ministers, NGOs, medical professionals, even private sector companies in order to authorize, fund, and then deliver the wide-scale Brazilian COVID Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trials. So talk about how you went about building this coalition and why was it so successful? I think, you know, going back to the beginning when COVID hit, first we looked at what we could do in education and, and we'll have a chance to discuss this. But then the second part was, okay, we are kind of a different player in the not-for-profit sector. We are an independent foundation. We don't take any government money. We are Brazil-focused, but we are global in the way that we operate. We have partnerships with some of the top universities around the world, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Columbia, Oxford University in the UK. So one thing that, and we have access to people, right? We believe in people and we, we believe to be, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to learn and with what's working in Brazil and outside Brazil and helping to accelerate that here. So we spent some time in back in April, last year, so very early days of the pandemic, we congregated a group of experts, some Harvard professors, some South Korean experts, some, you know, the leaders of the Gates Foundation and other people in nonprofit. And we put them together and said, okay, what should we do? Like what Brazil should be looking at and how, how we're going to see the end of that. And this was a phase where people were looking at PPE, at the protective equipment. People were looking at building more ICU beds. This was very important, you know, uh, uh, ensuring testing was happening. And they said, you know, unanimously, they said, you should focus on vaccines. This is going to be the, the, you know, the end of this. It will take some time, but we can develop a vaccine in record time. The, the whole world is mobilizing to that. And Brazil should not be out of the picture. Like Brazil needs to be part of it. And so that's, that's what we said. Okay, that's not our role. We're not a public health. Uh, we're not a science foundation. But if there is an opportunity to help, this is what we're going to do. And then about a few weeks after that, Oxford University approached us and they said, okay, we are developing this vaccine. It's a nonprofit vaccine. We have an agreement with AstraZeneca that it's going to be a cheap vaccine. It's going to be easy to store. It's a great vaccine for the developing world. And we need to test it. And we want to test it in Brazil. And they were starting the phase three trials in the UK and they needed another place to do it. And Brazil made sense because we had We've been hit by COVID, which is very important if you want to do a trial. But also, we have a very strong kind of uh, medical capacity in Brazil. We have universities. Uh, we have the capacity to do this, these kinds of trials. And we said, okay, you know, they needed funding. We agreed to fund the first phase of the trial. We helped find the other funds to expand the trial later on to 10,000 people. 
This was good because of the timing. It took about 45 days between the first email from Oxford and the first people person being inoculated with the vaccine in the Brazilian in the Sao Paulo trial. And, you know, after the trial started to go well, we said, okay, the reason we're back in the trial is not our love for science. We, we love science. Don't get me wrong. But we wanted Brazil to have access to vaccines, right? And they said, we cannot ensure that you're going to get access to vaccines, but being part of a trial is is kind of a, a good way to put Brazil on the map for vaccines. And then so then we started to discuss, okay, what's the next step? And the trials were evolving well and said, okay, Brazil has a, a competitive advantage, which is the fact that we have capacity to produce vaccines in Brazil. We have two institutions that are very renowned, few proofs uh, in Rio de Janeiro and Butantan in Sao Paulo, and both have the capacity not to produce fully a vaccine, but to receive the pharmaceutical ingredients and to transform that into a vaccine. And so we said that what they told us when we approached them is like, what we need is, is to build the capacity to do the whole vaccine. And if we do that, we'll be independent. There's a, a big, we're seeing this now. It's just a massive fight for, for the ingredients, pharmaceutical in, ingredients. You know, everybody's dependent on India and China that can, you know, concentrate most of the manufacturing. So they said, if you can do this in Brazil, then Brazil can help to fight COVID, but also in other problems in the future. And that's when we built this coalition with seven other corporate foundations and foundations companies. And we all put resources together with Fiocruz. And we helped uh, Fiocruz sign a, a technology transfer agreement with AstraZeneca. And we helped build the capacity, like build the equipments, uh, do everything uh, so that we can produce the vaccines. And the good news is that by end of April, this you know last month, the factory was ready. And, you know, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, Brazil started producing the Oxford vaccine fully in Brazil. So so this will be very important for fight the fight of the, against the pandemic, but also for the future in terms of a legacy. And so we were very happy to, to play a, a part in this, to help facilitate this coalition, to help bring some of the funds. We are not the biggest funders of this. The government is, in the end of the day, is, you know, public funds that make the main difference. But civil society can play a role in, in kind of clearing the way, building the connections, allowing to build trust, these relationships, and put the best of academic, academia, industry, you know, private sector, uh, philanthropy, government, to pull all these resources together and facilitate that. And, and, and thankfully, this will help millions of, of Brazilians to be safe. We'll be right back. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, 
Well, I'm really impressed how you did this. Obviously, a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic will help with this process. But do you feel like now that you've done this successfully, is this perhaps a model for other problems that will come our way where you could be a major catalyst, if you will, to bring all these different sectors together in order to accomplish this kind of result? I think that there is a lot of potential in that, in this combination of being willing to to learn, to listen, not come up with your own plan or your own expertise, maybe to facilitate dialogue, to provide catalytic resources. We are dealing with big, complex problems, right? Solving public education or other foundations are dealing with like climate change or or global pandemics or public safety, terrorism. All the main things that nonprofits are trying to tackle, I think, are super deeply entrenched, complex problems, right? And sometimes we are a little bit naive. When we join the sector, we kind of think, ah, this is just, you know, lack of political will, governments are incompetent or they are corrupt. And maybe that's true, but the fact is the problems are also very hard to solve. So I think part of the role of nonprofits is this place of like facilitating dialogue, finding different expertises, connecting different sources of funding, uh, finding high quality information and having a pragmatic kind of problem solving approach to it. So I hope we'll be able to continue to play this role. We have this played with this a little bit in some of the issues around education already in Brazil, but I, I see a lot of potential in this congregating different kinds of you know visions around the problem. It seems to be hard to do these days because of polarization, right? Everything is so polarized. And so I think we have to invest in those honest brokers and help to facilitate those frank dialogues and pragmatic approaches and be able to sustain that over different political shifts and waves and pandemics and, and, and whatnot. So I think it's important. Well, thank you for saying that. And your foundation's role in successfully garnering this coalition to the pandemic wasn't just the only success you saw this past year. I understand that you also sought to ensure school children had the opportunity to learn while even public schools were closed. So how did you respond to this need to provide tech solutions so that remote learning was possible for Brazil's millions of students? Because this is an issue that America is still dealing with. So what have you learned and what have you accomplished so far this year? So this was the number one priority, right? Schools, as in the US, I believe they closed in Brazil by mid-March 2020. But unlike Europe or unlike, you know, Asia, they haven't reopened, right? And, And so we're still like, you know, 14, 15 months of schools closed. And that's, people talk a lot about long COVID, like, you know, the, you know, you, you recovered, but you still don't smell things or you have, you know, difficulty breathing. Or I think the long COVID of all long COVIDs is the educational impact, right? Kids are going to be like, it's, it's a generation of kids because of school closures, because of the emotional impacts because of the situations inside their homes, which are not ideal, unfortunately, for our most vulnerable kids in Brazil, in the US, in many parts of the world, right? And so it was clear from the onset that, you know, we couldn't just switch a button and go to remote because we didn't have the expertise, the practice, but also because of connectivity and things like that. So again, here, we build a coalition, a task force of 35 different foundations, uh, state secretaries of education, municipal secretaries of education, startups dealing with ed tech and and things like that. And there were three things, I think. One was organize, like realize that kids wouldn't be able to follow the, you know, curriculum normally. You needed to make, 
you know, choices. Like, unless you do that, you did that, you know, it would be a mess in the country. So the first thing was organize, like, what are the key things like uh, competencies and, 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 and knowledge that kids need to acquire for every grade level? And so we built some consensus around that, what we call the focus map, looking at national learning standards and defining what's critical. Second thing was, okay, how we're going to deliver that. So what already exists in terms of technology? So mapping out, like what are, you know, the Khan Academy videos in Portuguese? What are the, the YouTube videos, the, the resources that state secretaries already use with their own teachers taping video lessons, but also, you know, WhatsApp, uh, how can you use WhatsApp to deliver lessons or exercise and things like that? So organize like this, this uh, uh, content around that and then deploy it, right? And, and the deploy is the hard part because it's the connectivity issue. So we needed to combine basically two strategies. One was to use TV. So, you know, every, every uh, house in Brazil has a television. So we were able to put together TV programming like four or five hours a day for different grade levels. And this was offered for free. So there were several TVs around the country and the TVs would just broadcast it for free as well. And that would get, you know, to people's homes. So at least you had some sort of, of education coming through the TV that you can ensure. And, and the second part was making agreements where you could put the educational content of a certain city inside an app. And this app could be accessed for free for the user. They didn't have to use their data plans because I don't know in the US, but in Brazil, the vast majority of people, they have a prepaid phone and they don't have a lot of money. And if they need to use their data to pay for their education, it's not going to happen. They need to use that for so many other things. So this was the second kind of big shift was trying to you know, negotiate these arrangements where either the state government or local government would pay for the data or, or things like that. And, and I think this is the way. The, the, the good news is we had about 12 million kids using the resources that, those coali- that this coalition was able to put together. And this is about maybe 30% of all the kids in Brazil. But 90% of the kids were able to, to use, to learn at, at a distance. So the problem is we never thought it was going to last for 15 months, right? This was a great solution for two months, three months, losing a semester, of course, you know, time goes by and you need interaction. You need to see other kids. You need to, you know, uh, uh, that part. So that's why we're fighting hard now to, to reopen the schools, to prioritize teachers on the vaccination in Brazil so we can safely reopen the schools. So there's a long way to go. It, it, it's, it was an important uh, aspect. It, it helped a lot of kids to be able to continue to learn. But we cannot fool ourselves. The efforts to recover all the impact that COVID has on education will demand a lot more than that in the near future. Well, again, I'm impressed with how you are bringing together so many different sectors together in order to address a major issue that impacts the entire country. What do you feel like you have most to teach nonprofits that are NGOs uh, that are trying to address similar issues, education, it could be remote learning, could be health issues, health disparities, food insecurity. What do you have to teach nonprofits and NGOs of the approach you've taken and why it's been so successful as well? I don't know if we can teach anyone, but what I can share for sure is that there are a lot of people in society wanting to help they don't necessarily know how. So this role of like providing a place where people could plug in, there is a, a large TV network in Brazil 
for example, they wanted to help. They didn't know what to do. We said, okay, you can use your, you know, broadcast and this is all the package of, you know, the lessons. It's already done. How you leverage existing resources, right? So instead of every school district in Brazil congregating their teachers in the middle of COVID to send to a studio to, to take, like, you know, just providing, okay, this is the model app you can do. This you can share all the different lessons. So we use some lessons made by a secretary in the Amazon with another one in this school district in Sao Paulo. We're going to put them together and that provides the content, right? So I think this kind of like thinking about the backbone of these ideas and finding out where each one can put their contribution and then orchestrating in a way that is like you have to monitor, right? You have to make sure this is going. So we, for example, we hired the largest public opinion uh, polling company in Brazil to do a survey every 45 days of all the parents of public, a representation of all the parents of public schools in Brazil. So we are saving and we're seeing like, how are your kid learning? Is your kid learning? Are their schools closed in the beginning? Okay, they are closed. Okay, are, how many hours a day are they using? Okay, they are only staying like one hour a day. What can we do to increase this? school day. Or maybe if we use WhatsApp, WhatsApp is free for, in most data plans, WhatsApp is free. So if we create something here that they can use WhatsApp, how can we engage parents, right? So we were monitoring this through these every 45 days, having a different survey, going back to the numbers and saying, okay, we start, you know, there are 50% of the kids are learning. Now we're reaching 65. The last one was like 92%, right? So, so, you know, we're getting to the kids and now we're doing a survey, for example, now the next round of surveys, like, what are the conditions for learning at home? We looked at this in the beginning. Like, did they have the right device? You know, if we only send things through through cell phones, would that work? Do they have computers and things like that? So, so you have to build the backbone. You have to have a plan, a strategy. You have to find ways for people to plug in and engage them. And then you have to monitor. If you don't monitor, it's, it's a nice story, but it doesn't make people's lives better. I've had many guests on the show before talking about how can nonprofits be catalysts to bring government officials, the for-profit sector, to address these really complicated issues? Like you said before, they're they're very challenging. There's many layers to it. And so I think it is naive sometimes for nonprofits or NGOs to think they can solve everything. And so having foundations, having the government, everyone coming together, but it has to be done in a clear way. It has to have a clear pl- process and plan of how you're going to accomplish your goal. So again, you've done this really well. And one more thing I do want to talk about is because because public education has been one of your primary missions at your foundation, you're instrumental, as I understand it, in putting together a national learning standard. And that's a big deal. Uh, and that sounds like a very daunting challenge with as many school children as you have in Brazil, as it would be in the United States as well. So talk about this process. How did you go about that? What were the biggest obstacles along the way that you faced? So when, when we kind of agreed about 10 years ago, although the foundation has been around for almost 20 years, about, you know, 10, nine years ago, we said, okay, the, the, you know, we need to make sure every public school kid in Brazil is going to succeed. We have about 40 million kids in K through 12 in Brazil. So it's a very large system. And, and for the American audience, it's very similar to the U.S., highly decentralized, right? Each city has their own school district. The federal government has an important role as a funder, but not necessarily, you know, each school district can do whatever they want, pretty much. And there is a lot of inequality in the system. And like the U.S., about 85% of the kids are in the public schools uh, in Brazil. So you're not going to do anything without the public school system. They need to be your, 
your main focus if you're thinking large scale and especially equity, right? And and so once we we agreed that we wanted to have that kind of scale, we thought we went back to kind of our notebooks and said, okay, what scales, right? What scales well? So technology, okay, technology scales well, can get to 40 million. You know, one thing that scales well is policy, right? If if you can influence, especially if you are a not-for-profit, even if you're a very large foundation, you know, even if your 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 founders are extremely wealthy, it's it's just a, a, a you know a, a drop of money compared to public uh, systems. So you need to engage. It's a democracy. You know, uh, people need to engage in a public debate and engage in a debate around public funds allocation and 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 doing that through influencing policy is a good way to do it. So we said, okay, we need to find. What are the key structural policies, right? Few key structural policies that can really help to move the needle, to shift the, uh, the issue. And, and Brazil, as the U.S. was before the Common Core, you know, we didn't have national learning standards. So not only it's a decentralized system, but there's no clear understanding of what kids need to learn for every grade. So that means, you know, parents cannot judge the quality of education. You cannot know, you cannot compare if a kid moves from one school to the next. They don't know if they, you know, learn, you know, and also it gives a lot of power to like publishers because they are publishing the textbooks. So they decide what the fourth grade is going to learn. And then the other publisher thinks differently. So if a school adopt one book, they're going one direction. And, and also it's kind of crazy because we had a national assessment system in place, but we didn't tell teachers what they need to teach, but we are doing a test. So, you know, you have teachers reverse engineering the test. And trying to figure out oh, what those assessment people are looking for. And you also had teacher preparation that was highly decentralized. Every university had a different teacher preparation program. And again, if you don't tell what kids need to learn, every university is going to take you know, a very different approach. So we said, okay, that seems to be a key area of focus. If we can agree as a country on what kids need to learn for at every grade level, we are doing two things. We're shifting the debate from the adults to the kids. Because then, you know, we're deciding, okay, you know, it, should they be literate at age seven or six? What does it mean to be literate? You know, when do you introduce statistics? When do you, you know, when are you going to deal with that? So these are very crucial debates for a society that reduces inequality immediately. Because then a kid in a school in the middle of the Amazon and a kid in a private school in Sao Paulo, they will have the same rights because they will need to, to, to you know, so you're bringing equity to the system. But the last part is you're bringing coherence. Because once you define national learning standards, then assessment needs to measure if the kids are learning this. So, you know, assessments need to be organized. They need to be aligned to the textbooks. Textbooks need to teach the standards and teacher preparation. Teachers need to be. And, and it's very important because standards are not how you teach, are what kids need to learn, which is very different. So you, you leave a lot of room for autonomy, for the teachers, for innovation, for but you agree on the end of the way, right? You say, okay, that's where we want to reach. If you're going to, if you want to go this way, if you want to go up the mountain, down the mountain, if you're going to go down the valley, that's up to you, right? What works for every student? But we have agreed as a country that our kids need to finish school, you know, in order to be ready for life, that these are the skills that they need to acquire. These are the, the content that they need to cover. So this, this was the process. That's why we focused on that. And then the process is very similar to what I described, but just a very longer term process. It took us about five years to build a coalition, build awareness around Brazil, around that, 
pick people from all sides of the island, the political system. We don't have two parties in Brazil, Rob. We have 30. So you can imagine how you know complex this is. They have been starting to be implemented in 2020, was the first year of implementation, the year of the pandemic. So, but it was super important to have the standards to be able to, you know, know where to focus and to organize these resources that were used that we just talked about. Because if we didn't have standards, how you organize that? You know, every kid would be in a different place. So hopefully this will be an important part of the of the path of transforming uh, Brazilian education. Well, once again, I'm really impressed with all that you're doing and how uh, complex that whole process must have been. Now, COVID is starting to lift a little bit, as I was talking to you before the show. Sounds like things are heading in the right direction. As you kind of look into the future, what are the next big challenges that your foundation feels like they need to address? Uh, There are a few. The number one is going to be remediation, like what we do with a kid that imagine a kid who was in third grade in 2019 in, in Brazil, the, the school year is the calendar year. Okay. February to December. So they are in school. They finished third grade. Right. And then in 2020, February, they start the school year and they are in fourth grade. They have one month of school. Then the schools are closed by the end of the year. They graduate fourth grade because you're not going to, you know, keep all the system. So kids, Move to the next year. Now they're in fifth grade. We're in 2021. It's June. Schools are not open yet. So maybe they'll go back to school in August if everything is like works perfectly, you know, and they'll have like four months and then the school year will be end. And then in 2022, hopefully they'll have a full school year for the first time in three years or, you know, and, and they're going to be in sixth grade. And sixth grade is a different, you know, it's middle school. It's a different story. They have, you know, uh, expert teachers and not like one teacher, a reference teacher. What's going to happen, right? This kid is not in sixth grade. They are probably in third grade still because they they lost a lot. And and but the system will keep pushing them, right? So we'll have a massive problem all around the world because we're not going to stop all the schools and you know massively, you know. So we'll need to figure that out. And I think that again is is a massive complex problem that will need coordination. And thinking about. So this is a big, big thing. And remediation is not only about content. More and more, we are comparing this. It's it's not a very uplifting note, but we are comparing this experience to a war. You know, kids have been talking about that. They have been experiencing that in the US and Brazil. We have 500,000 people. We're approaching 500,000 people uh, dead from COVID. You know, that's that's a war and one of the biggest wars. You know, in Brazil, we never lived nothing close to that, right? And teachers are hurt, students are hurt, families are are with a lot of problems. So it's not only about the content, but it's also about the, you know, uh, uh, receiving those kids properly, making the schools a place that is nice to go, that is warm to go, you know, that people are being taken care of after living dramatic situations. So I think this is the biggest uh, thing. The, The second and last is, school connectivity. We are convinced that we've been discussing for so long the future of education, and now we just realize the future arrived. Like, it's now, and it's hybrid, right? There was so much debate about it's blended, right? There was so much debate. Will technology substitute teachers? Will schools close? Universities close? Everything will be a move? No. Will technology never enter education? No. It's, It's hybrid. It's going to be. You will need to the extra hours that technology can give you, the personalization of learning, 
that technology can give you in these times. And, and in order to be able to do that, we need to improve school connectivity in our country dramatically. And so I think that's another big, big issue that, that we're going to be hopefully involved with. All right. Well, Dennis, this has been a fascinating conversation and you're doing so many things across the country. I think my listeners, even though they're in the United States, most of them, they're going to be interested in finding out more about you and more about the foundation. So where would you send them if they want to find out more about the Lemon Foundation and more about you? It would be great to have people visit our, our website. That's a good start. Lemon Foundation, L-E-M-A-N-N, foundation.org. There you have you know information about our programs, our teams, our, our strategy, our annual reports. Uh, I'm happy to connect on LinkedIn at Dennis Misney. Search me on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to connect. And, and through the lemonfoundation.org, you find all our social media channels where uh, we have a Twitter channel on in, in English. We have a LinkedIn page in English. So happy to, to connect through there. Well, again, Dennis, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing all your insights. Again, it's super fascinating what you're doing there and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.